how to structure the legal ownership of an RIA. That is today's question on the transition to RIA question and answer series. It is episode number 52. Hi, I'm Brad Wales with Transition to RIA, where I help you understand everything there is to know about why and how to transition to the RIA model. So on today's uh, episode, we're going to talk about, you know, how to set up the legal structure of the, of the RIA from an ownership perspective. So I've done uh, a number of episodes. You can go back and find those. I'll, I'll link to some of them in the show notes. Uh, but I've done a number of episodes on, on how to set up the RIA itself from a logistical standpoint. And, and typically you work with compliance consultant firms or specialized attorneys that can help you with that. And so there is a whole process, a whole timeline, steps involved of how you set up the RIA itself. Uh, like I said, lots of episodes I've done. You can you can learn more about that. But what we're going to talk about today is, and, and this is a question I get often, is, okay, but who can technically own the RIA uh, you know, can I own it in my individual name? Uh, is, you know, is that an option? Well, what happens if there's me and other partners? Uh, and then it's also, hey, can we set it up maybe in the name of an entity, an LLC or something like that? And why might we want to consider doing that? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, uh, because it is something that comes up uh, quite often and is, is a quite important part of starting up your own RA firm and, and checking those boxes. So with that, I have a wonderful guest on today. As you can, any of those watching on screen can see uh, good friend Rich Chen with the Richard L. Chen Law Firm. Rich, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Brad. It's great to be here. Yeah, I think we're going to have a great, uh, great conversation. I'll ask uh, Rich to give a little background uh, on himself and his firm here in just a second. But, uh, but like I said, this, this is something that is important to think through. And this is, this is the classic case of the blocking and tackling of starting up your own firm. There's, there's certainly things that are more exciting about starting up your own firm. Maybe the, maybe the marketing, oh, I get a new brand and how I'm going to position in the marketplace. But there's, there's also a lot of you know, the, the check the boxes things that are very important to, to get right on the front end, not only because what might be required today, but also forward looking of, of hey, I want to position myself well, because as things change over time, I, I don't want to you know put up any hurdles now that could come back to bite me. And so part of that is, hey, how do I set this up from an ownership structure? So, so that's what we're going to be diving into uh, here. So Rich, if you could give us a brief background on yourself and your firm, I think that'd be quite helpful. Absolutely, Brad. Um, so I've been a practicing attorney since 1998. Uh, I've been working in investment management for more than two decades. I founded uh, Richard L. Chen PLLC about two and a half years ago. Uh, we serve uh, predominantly SEC registered investment advisory firms uh, with all kinds of strategies, and we provide a broad uh, scope of uh, compliance program uh, uh, development and management services, SEC mock audits, uh, SEC registrations, and uh, representation in, in SEC exams. But on the legal side, we help firms to structure uh, their ownership and uh, compensation structures. We help them to review and uh, negotiate commercial contracts with service providers, develop their own client agreements, employment agreements, and manuals. We also do M&A and uh, joint venture and succession planning work for advisors, and then private fund formation and operational due diligence on funds. 
Fantastic. That's uh, a lot, a lot of topics. Uh, I can tell you, um, well, well, two things I'd, I'd point out. One that uh, Rich omitted, but I think it's quite fair to point out he is a Harvard undergrad and a Harvard law school. So so quite uh, humble that you didn't even mention that, but uh, quite, quite the credentials there uh, from your background. Um, and, and then if you think, oh, wow, he, he just named off a bunch of Topics, could he really be a subject on all those? I'd encourage you, if you're not already connected with him on LinkedIn, and, and today was no exception, I saw one of your posts from today, uh, his, his knowledge runs wide and deep of, of the different topics he, uh, he posts about and, and provides information on. So certainly as, as part of this, find him on LinkedIn uh, and lot, lots you can learn from uh, all of the content, uh, Rich, you're putting out there. So uh, thanks for, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a lot. And like I said, wide and deep. So good job on all that. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. It's a joy to to be able to be a resource and to be helpful to RIAs, you know, whether they're starting out or well-established. Terrific. Well, let's dive in. So the first kind of initial capstone part of this question is, and and maybe I'll just keep referring to to me as if I'm an advisor, I'm starting an RIA, is can I have the ownership, the formal ownership of it? Can it be an individual? Does it, or does it need to be, you know, Brad Wales, or if there's particular reasons, and, and by the way, a disclaimer, we'll get the disclaimer out of the way at the top end. Some of these, some of these aspects you would want to bring in your, your CPA, your accountant as well to, to talk through what your personal tax situation is. So this, this will be at a macro level, what we're going to talk about here, but you know, at that macro level, is there is there uh, options uh, to to set it up as in the name of the individual? You know, Brad Wales owns this RA, or do I have the option to have you know maybe an LLC own it, and I technically own the LLC? So, what are our options, and why might someone do one versus the other? Great question, Brad. You you can technically set up as an individual, although extremely few uh, RIAs actually do that. And there are a variety of reasons for that. The most important is that uh, entities like LLCs and corporations allow you to have uh, what's called asset protection. And basically, when you look at an entity and sort of with the business that you conduct through it, um, when it's the, the formalities are honored, it protects your personal assets. So your house and your retirement account and all sorts of things from the potential reach of those that might be dissatisfied, you know, over time with the services that you provide. Um, basically, the only thing that they can really go after are the assets in the entity. Um, and so it is a huge benefit benefits. Um, obviously, ENO is insurance is helpful, but, but the structuring um, through an entity is helpful. Another reason people do it is because they want to build an enterprise, build brand equity. For instance, if you have a, a name that you brand under or, uh, you know, if you're building an enterprise that you can, you know, if you so desire down the road, sell it. Uh, that allows you, if you do it through an entity, to uh, facilitate that process. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of, I mean, it's interesting that almost any any industry out there, small business startup, you always think it's it's in an entity and, and it, it might be the majority of folks now that do it. But I, I definitely see folks that that have it still as an individual. And I think I think these these topics here are something that should be kind of you know taken to heart on that front. So with respect to the entity, and again, there's disclaimer, there's you know, tax considerations that, that you'd want to, you know, go through as well. But is there any limitation to what kind of entity? I mean, is it only an LLC is allowed? Is it only an S corp? Is it only a partnership or, or, or is there any kind of regulatory 
limitations there? No, there, there aren't any regulatory limitations. I mean, the, the certain entities like LLCs and corporations are the entities that provide you with the asset protection. And so that is that is important. Um, by and large, most RIAs set up as uh, LLCs, uh, limited liability companies. And the reason for that is because the LLC gives you a tremendous amount of flexibility in terms of how you structure uh, your ownership, um, your rights. And there are you know some basic buckets of rights that we'll go over later on. But partners can contribute different amounts, receive different amounts in terms of profits or equity in the business. You can you have pretty broad flexibility in an LLC, um, but you have less flexibility in an S corp or a you know a C corp where there are you know sort of disadvantageous sort of tax consequences. So by and large, people set up as an LLC. Okay. And I, I assume with the LLC itself, there's no limitations over. There might be limitations on the number of owners you can have, but what that ownership split is. But even back to that, at that RA level, if, if someone was, for whatever reason, wanted to have an individual or individuals as the owners versus an entity, or maybe a combination of the two, is there any minimum from a regulatory perspective? Like, you know, Rich, you and I, if we're advisors, we start an RA. Is there anything that says you can't, you you own 99% and I only own 1%? I mean, is there any minimum amount of, of, ownership interests that, that the regulators require for someone to be called quote unquote an owner or, or does it, you know, whatever works for the, for the, the individual advisors? Yeah, good question. No, there's no limit. And that's part of the beauty of the LLC is that flexibility. You can contribute as much, you can own as much as you want to. Uh, it's, it's total flexibility uh, in terms of the owners. Um, a lot of people own it through individual ownership, but some folks will do it through entities like trusts. You can do your estate planning uh, through your LLC. And if you worked with an estate planning attorney, uh, it can potentially be advantageous from a tax planning, uh, estate planning uh, perspective for, for folks. Um, and so it, it's definitely something to, uh, to look at and to, uh, to think about, uh, for how that, uh, that can be beneficial for, for an owner's, um, tax circumstances. Another thing that can be beneficial is that you want to think about the fact that LLCs actually can be taxed as either a partnership or an S-corp. And this is where it is important to talk to an accountant to figure out which election makes sense for the individual owner. So even if it's structured as an LLC, there's a lot of flexibility on ownership and um, you know what tax elections that you take. So so for the people that are currently, and I've I've seen it, we're going to get into kind of where where all this information is publicly or privately published, but to a little spoiler, it is in the ADV. And, and so I have seen Plenty, it might not be the majority, but plenty of ADVs when you go down that, that ownership part and it, it is, you know, Brad Wales 100% and it is in that person's individual name. Do you know, I mean, do you think that the question is, okay, well, why would anyone do that for all the reasons you said it makes sense as an entity? Any, any guesses why, I mean, is it maybe just not aware of the options that, that they could do it in an entity and then to the degree someone's maybe watching this that, that already has an RIA that, that does have it under an individual name and now has realized they have some options, can it be changed after the fact or, or is it decided only at the time the RIA is set up? It's a good question. I mean, I, I really don't know what the benefit of setting up as an individual uh, to own an RIA really would be. But the good news is that, you know, with some maneuvering, uh, if you own an RIA individually, uh, you, you can 
um, you know, put the, you can transfer the ownership to an LLC. There are definitely certain things that you will have to do and to consider, including potential assignment of client contracts, revision of the form ADV and things like that, but it's doable. So it's, it's not like you're stuck if you're owning in an individual as a uh, firm as an individual and you want to switch to ownership in an LLC, it, it's doable. You just have to jump through some hoops. So ideally easier, doable, but easier to just, I don't want to say do it right, but it's do it maybe most effectively or efficiently on the, on the front end, um, obviously save on some cost and, and headaches, uh, to yeah. not have to change it down the, down the road. Absolutely. Right. So what is the, I, on, on those episodes I've referenced talking about setting up the RA and I just talk about how long that takes. So let's say again, Rich, you and I are advisors. We're, we're starting up an RA We've watched this wonderful video of, of that, that we've uh, episode here that we've made. And we say, you know what, we, we should do this as an LLC. What is the process for setting up for anyone that's never done it, an LLC and maybe how long does that take? Um, you know, is that, is that a, a couple of days, a, a month, or what's that look like to actually set up the entity? Yeah. And so the good news is that process can be relatively quick. Uh, it's basically you file uh, what's called the Certificate of Formation or Articles of Organization, depending on the state in which you organize. Uh, and you can you know, get the next day turnaround if you want to, or even same day turnaround. Uh, and uh, basically, once you file that and you get a return uh, evidence back from the state, um, then you are organized officially. But there are some, some other steps you need to do. Uh, typically, you want to get an employer identification number, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, and you can apply for that online. Um, and But the biggest uh, step is that you will need to put together an operating agreement. Um, and particularly if you have two or more owners that lay out the rights of the parties. And there's two buckets of rights, you know, which we can talk about basically um, rights with respect to the management and decision-making, whether it's on a day-to-day -day basis uh, or uh, just, just with respect to extraordinary decisions. And then you have to allocate economic rights, right? With respect to uh, the ownership of uh, the entity, the equity in the business, Business, as well as how you decide to divide up the profits, right, uh, of the company um, through distributions. So, you know, that's why the operating agreement is the biggest step, because it requires making decisions uh, in terms of how the uh, LLC uh, will be governed uh, and, you know, the decision making will, will take place. Yeah, and I thank you for bringing up the operating agreement. I was, I was going to bring that up, not because I'm smart enough to know about them, but I've, I've heard you talk about them before. And so to be clear, that's kind of a separate, uh, that doesn't have, that doesn't go to the state or that's not part of the filing thing. That, that's just almost a private, um, and you, you, of course, would know the legal term better than I do. That's just kind of a private agreement between whoever the individual owners are of, hey, let's memorialize what we've you know kind of verbally sat down and agreed to of how we're going to run this thing and how the economics are going to work but that's that's only between those two parties right that doesn't really get yes. shared with anyone else you know unless there's ever an issue it doesn't get shared with regulators your bank may want to see it when you're setting up the uh the bank accounts but by and large yeah there's no regulatory uh, a review or uh you know approval of your operating agreement that's purely between the owners Okay. Okay. So I, mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like the actual filing again, we're just, we keep saying LLC, but it, it in theory could be a different entity. Yeah. The filing itself sounds pretty 
simple for someone that knows what they're doing pretty quick, yes. but it's that operating agreement that sounds like takes uh, a lot more consideration of, of right. thinking through all the variables. There may be a couple other things to think about. If you if you organize in a state different from where you practice, you may actually have to also file an application for authority in the state where you're actually doing business. And the other thing you may do if you want to set up your RIA in doing uh, business under another name, you, you may need to file uh, certain filings. Uh, with fictitious name filings with this, you know, the jurisdiction to make sure that you can use the DBA instead of your legal name of, of the entity itself. Okay. Yeah. And a, a thing I would, as, as you were describing all of those nuances that a reminder, I've pointed out a lot of episodes, I'll, I'll point it out again here because it's important to is to no one should be intimidated by by any of this. The, the when you start your RA or you you move into the RA in some other model, maybe you join an RA firm. Th there's a lot of steps involved in that process, and that's a thing I I routinely help advisors with and understand. And and in each one of those steps, there's a defined process for how to manage it, and you you need to know what the process is and know the people to to lean on to help you with that. And so. Uh, you might be taking notes on some of this stuff, but the idea, and of, and of course, Rich is obviously an expert on this, is, is don't be intimidated by this. The, the, what you do need to know is that, okay, there are variables here that need to be considered. Who do I lean on to help me understand all of that? And, and there are folks, again, Rich being one of them, that, that will walk you through all this. And, and it's nothing that you need to feel you're not going to be able to accomplish as long as you have that, that proper guidance. So um, uh, I think important to keep in mind. So next next question, a thing, the example I would give, um, and then you'll see how this relates to this topic. So I, as I'm talking to advisors, again, they're thinking about starting up their own RA. And, and so part of that conversation comes into like, what's the interaction between the RIA and a custodian? And, and, and we talk about all that. And oftentimes I'll point out you know, why someone might be, as they say, single custodian and multi-custodian and, and I saw a stat the other day. I think it's like two thirds of RAs are, are multi-custodian nowadays. And and what I always point out to advisors with respect to that conversation is, hey, usually you might start single custodian because there's some simplicity when you're first starting up to, to do that. But but plan for the long term. So so plan for circumstances that might arrive at some point. This won't go into in this episode, but there's reasons it might make sense for you to be eventually multi-custodial. So don't do anything on the front end that's going to make it difficult for you on the back end to possibly take that, you know, perhaps almost inevitable step. So circling back to this topic, uh, how, how would that apply or what, what should advisors make sure they're not boxing themselves in? So I'll, I'll give an example. If I'm an advisor and right now it's, it's just me and maybe I have a team of people, but, it, but at least I'm the only ownership or the only owner of the practice and I set it up now, but who's to say in five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever the case is, there might be need for additional owners uh, or additional partners, whatever the case may be. So any thoughts on things you should do on the front end to make sure you don't make things more difficult on the back end with the expectation that your circumstances could change over time? That's a great question. Um, so I think the, the important things to think about are the fact that, you know, th these documents can and should evolve over time as the business does. So you have to make sure that the provisions that allow for amendment of the operating agreement 
are sufficiently flexible uh, and agreed upon by the members of the LLC so that you can make those changes down the road because invariably that will happen, right? Um, but so it's important to have uh, uh, um, uh, that that flexibility to 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 and and also important to have good um, dispute resolution mechanics, right? Because um, uh, if if the parties, especially if there's say let's say two owners with equal ownership, right? You need to have ways of managing disputes that are uh, spelled out, um, and so that the parties can be happy that you know if we come into an issue that we have a problem with, that we can resolve it. But but it is important to realize that these these documents are living and breathing uh, documents that that will change over time. Yeah, and I think it just reinforces again the. The importance certainly have not taken the the cookie cutter operating agree, agreement template, you know, off off the proverbial shelf, uh, filling in a couple of names, and and then thinking you're all set. It's it's worth the time and resources on the front end, one to do it right, and then and then per what you just said, so so long term you have the the needed flexibility uh, for change in circumstances. So we we talked about that operating agreement is. A, private document for lack of a better term, but that's my layman's term. And so it's not necessarily shared except for maybe beyond a, a bank or whatnot, but the actual ownership of the firm, who all and where all is that disclosed, whether privately, maybe directly to the regulators or publicly the ADV. And, and maybe I just answered the question, but because some of it is public knowledge, what, where is that ownership disclosed or who is it disclosed to? Yeah, so it's actually disclosed in Form ADV in Schedules A uh, and B and potentially C if there are amendments. Uh, so basically anyone who is the, owns more than 5% uh, of an LLC or an IA entity will uh, be disclosed on the Form ADV. Uh, and if there's an indirect ownership, let's say an entity owns uh, 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 an interest in the uh, LLC, uh, the indirect owners would also be disclosed if they own more than 25% of the entity that holds the LLC interest. And that could be a silent partner kind of thing, but still because they own enough, it, it would need to be listed. Yeah, basically they want to go up the chain if there's sufficient uh, ownership of an entity, they wanna understand who, who owns that, that's right. Okay, so related to that, and I'm a, Big proponent. Anyone that tunes into my episodes, I I always try to be a straight shooter. Give pros and cons. Everything everything in the world is there's pros and cons to. So clearly, setting up under an entity structure seems to be the the better way to do it for a lot of the reasons we just stated. Um, but it can perhaps add some complications as well. I'll give a I'll give an example, and then and then Rich, if you have any you want to add. Uh, when I worked at a custodian uh, during part of my career. I was on the, uh, the, the committee that approved or reviewed and, and approved any new uh, agreements with RAs that, that wanted to use that custodian for clearance services. That's a pretty typical thing custodians do. Obviously, you want to get comfortable with them. They need to be comfortable with you. And so part of that is looking at, hey, who are, who are the owners here involved and, and maybe reviewing a C or D and, and things like that. And if it was an entity that owned it and, and maybe uh, more than one entity, we, we generally had to peel the onion back and start saying, okay, well, well, who owns the entity? And then it comes into, well, what percent do we care about the person that owns 5% of the LLC or just above that? It's all doable. It does slow that process down. And most custodians will want to 
break that wall down and say, okay, great, it's an LLC, but now we want to know who owns the LLC. Any thoughts on that or any other circumstances you come across where an entity maybe makes it actually more challenging that just would be worth being aware of? Well, I think that's right. And I think custodians and I would add banks as well would probably want to know about the indirect owners because they want to know who they're uh, dealing with, whether it's for anti-money laundering or other purposes. You know, they'll want to peel the onion back to understand who the ultimate people who are uh, owning the entity and responsible for how it uh, is is being uh, governed. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I think if you find that there are benefits, for instance, through tax, uh, I mean, through estate planning, uh, to have an entity, you know, I think that those benefits, uh, in my opinion, can far outweigh the hassle of, of, of having to explain, you know, who owns my uh, entities that own my LLC. Um, but it really depends on the circumstances. And so do you, when you, and then when you mentioned estate plan, and as, as you help folks with this, I mean, are you sometimes kind of being the quarterback and, and realizing there's a couple parties involved in this, whether it's estate experts or accountants? I mean, is that, is that something you, you, you typically see as you're helping advisors get all this? Absolutely. Up? Absolutely. I strongly encourage folks to work at the very least with an accountant because it's critical because, uh, to understand uh, the, the tax circumstances of the owners of the entity, because there are important decisions to make. It's definitely not a cookie cutter exercise uh, to structure an LLC. And to the extent that estate planning makes sense uh, to bring those folks in. And so, you know, we help to quarterback that process to make sure that all of these considerations give a full picture of what is best for the owners of the RIA. Yeah, I think it's just a lot of moving parts. And again, nothing to be intimidated by. It's just, it's just, working through a defined process of how to, to manage this part of the, the whole, you know, setup of, of your own firm. So that's certainly helpful. Um, any other takeaways? I, I probably haven't asked every question that could be asked. Uh, you, you help folks with this. So you probably get asked questions. Anything you think I haven't asked that would be helpful for advisors to at least be thinking of initially um, as they kind of consider all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are a lot of decisions that are made, especially when you're putting together the operating agreement. Oftentimes people want to address what happens if, you know, one of the members wants to leave or has to leave, right? Death or disability, bankruptcy, divorce, retirement of a partner. What happens in those circumstances? The operating agreement helps set some parameters for how those things will uh, be um, handled in the event that those things take place. But even from a day-to-day standpoint, you know, looking at, as we were talking about, the management of the RIA, right? Who makes day-to-day decisions? Who's going to be responsible for what? Who can sign on behalf of the RIA, right? On the management side, you know, and are there things where, you know, people will have uh, rights to uh, consent or veto, right, with respect to big decisions? On the economic side, there's decisions to be made with respect to uh, profits, uh, distributions, you know, and potentially you can have people who have a a profit interest who don't technically own the RIA, for instance, uh, potentially employees down the road that you want incentivized to stay with a firm, you can give them a profit interest without having an equity interest. Um, And, you know, the, the other thing to think about is, 
you know, sort of uh, the equity um, and how you will divide that up between the partners based on what they contribute. So lots and lots of decisions that help day-to-day governance, but also think about the worst case scenarios. What happens if we don't all get along? How are we going to handle things at that point? Yeah, and that that always comes back to the right. The it's much less expensive to try to tackle those things on the front end correctly than trying to potentially have to unwind something that gets messy on the back end because it, it maybe wasn't uh, fully thought through uh, on the front end. My guess is that can be exponentially more expensive on the back end if um, if it's if it's not done right. Um, yes. And by the way, one, one last question. I, I think we started to talk about it and then, and then got sidetracked. How long, um, if an advisor were to call you up today and they want your help with this, and, and so some of that's in your control, Rich, some of that's in the advisor's control, but I mean, start to finish, what's your ideal timeline you would like if you were helping someone with this ownership process and then the filings and all that stuff, what kind of window of time is ideal for this process to play out? We can do the process as, as little as, you know, a week or two, potentially, if we get all the information we need. But generally, I think it's worth it to uh, bank at least a month uh, in order to think through decisions, particularly if you have multiple owners and you have to have discussions about how you want to handle things. Because the way we do it is we provide uh, an initial questionnaire to folks to help them think through a lot of the key decisions. And then they go back and have that discussion and come back to us. And then between that and also coordinating with accountants and if necessary, estate planning attorneys, you know, it takes some time to make sure that um, everything's thought through properly. So a month is a good amount of time. Okay. Yeah. And then what is, uh, as we wrap up, and, and I've actually been been bad about not pointing this out on all my prior episodes, so I got to get in the habit of pointing it out. Uh, I have Rich on the show. He's not paying to be on the show. I'm not paying him to be on the show. Uh, I just think he's a wonderful resource. I think this episode has proven that. Uh, so there's, there's no financial interest uh, either way or if I refer people to him. So just, just to be clear on that front. Um, but for people that are interested in this topic that do like what, what you've said and, and do want to explore these topics further, what, what is the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, so um, I always welcome the opportunity to connect with people and just to be a resource. You can email me at rich at Richard L. Chen, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-L-C-H-E-N.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn uh, and our website is www.richardlchen.com. Perfect. And I will make sure each of those three items are in the show notes uh, for folks that... uh want to circle back. And, and again, um, certainly the website's great, email's great, but I've learned a lot myself following uh, Rich on LinkedIn. So at a minimum, I, I encourage people to uh, to reach out and connect with them that way. Uh, great, great resource there. Um, so to wrap up, uh, like I said, my name is Brad Wales with Transition to RIA. And if you're not already there, if you head on over to transitiontoria.com, uh, that's where we'll have the show notes. Um, all kinds of episodes, both in video format, podcast format. I have white papers. Uh, you can certainly reach out to me. That's my contact information right there on every page of the website uh, to reach out. Uh, and like, again, we'll have, we'll have Rich's uh, contact information there as well. So uh, with that, we'll, we'll wrap up. Rich, thank you very much for coming on. It's, it's, uh, I always say it's, these sorts of things aren't necessarily the sexiest of, of uh, 
components to launch in a firm, but but they're often uh, some of the most important. So thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us. Uh, Brad, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks all.